Well, actually, it's brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Ticket prices drop right before the game starts, and because GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, they're able to show you the best last-minute deals, with prices up to 60% off. I'm sure you remember this little UFC 245 thing that's going on this Saturday. You know, the one in Las Vegas with not one, not two, but three title fights? You can totally still get tickets for that, and in just two clicks, by the way. The GameTime app is simple, quick, and easy to navigate. Download the GameTime app in the Google Play or App Store and score last-minute deals on tickets up to 60% off. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of, well, actually, the Athletic MMA's podcast about MMA and other stuff. I'm your host, Fernanda Prates, and I think I should probably start saying that more often at the beginning of episodes. Apparently, there are people still having problems pronouncing my name, and now that I am struggling with names in my life like every single week, I guess I have developed a new sense of solidarity. So, just to get that out of the way once and for all, Fernanda Prates is how I would say my own name. It is not the only correct pronunciation. I'm from Rio. So when we say words that end with an S, we just say shh. While people from other places in Brazil, like say São Paulo, we just say s. So I could become Fernanda Prates, depending on who's saying it. That, of course, leaves out the different ways in which the R's can be pronounced. But that's enough culture for one episode. In fact, it's more culture than I've offered in all my episodes combined. I feel like I'm kind of betraying my brand here. In my defense, I am not really myself today. I've been sick, as you may notice by my voice and the constant sniffling you're about to endure, and my whole head is just mucus at this point. As it turns out, much to my surprise, running outdoors, getting no sleep, and consuming alcohol is not an effective way to get over health issues. It's almost like all those years watching ER, Scrubs, and Grey's Anatomy have not qualified me to make proper medical decisions. I know, crazy, right? I have, however, heroically managed to overcome this terrible ailment that is the common cold, and I then managed to put together an episode for you. Instead of going with one theme, though, I'm touching on a few different topics this week. We have UFC 245 coming up on Saturday in Vegas. We just had the UFC event in Washington, D.C., and also a couple of interesting news stories that broke over these past few days. I asked you on Twitter if you had anything that you would like me to talk about, and between all of that, I just thought we had enough to keep ourselves entertained for today. Lise Carmouche and her giant mess of a UFC departure, Amanda Nunes' legacy, and also the many layers of weight misses are a few of the things that are going to come up today. Also, Kobe Covington, because you left me no fucking choice, did you? It's a little different than my usual stuff, but I hope you enjoy it. It's totally cool if you don't. Just keep in mind that you might be talking to a dying lady, and you might not want to have that on your conscience. I'll start with a suggestion that I got on Twitter on Tuesday morning. I was actually going to say this morning, but then I remembered that we are no longer a Tuesday podcast. I am recording on Tuesday night, but as of this week, well, actually, it's coming out on Wednesdays. I'd say write it down, but that's stupid. If you subscribe to the podcast, you notice when a new episode appears. And if you don't subscribe, then what is your problem? Why do you hate me? 
Have we not established that I come from a broken home and I need constant reassurance and support? Jesus, I just can't with you people. But hopefully you do subscribe and back to actual relevant MMA things. Yes, I got a few questions. Thank you all for participating and not making me feel stupid. I'll start with this one by Luke Southworth, who asked me to discuss, and I quote, Carmouche and how her claims stand up. Is she just the latest problem fighter to get released like Fitch and Mighty Mouse? <sighs> I need to take a breather for that. There are a few layers to the whole Lise Carmouche situation that's unfolded publicly since Friday. So I guess I'll start with the easy stuff, which is context. Carmouche who was part of the USC's very first women's bout all the way back in 2013, was notified by her management last week that she had been released by the promotion, which happens, right? Fighters get cut all the time. The circumstances, however, would be what a polite person would call messy, I guess, and what a less polite person, meaning yours truly, would call a total and absolute clusterfuck. Kramush was in Washington, D.C., where the UFC held their UFC on ESPN7 event last Saturday, and she was taking part in some of their fight week promotional activities. Kramush is a former Marine and an Iraq war veteran, and I had actually seen images of her on Friday, along with other fighters, doing this wreath lane ceremony. I don't even know if that's how you say it. Wreath? I don't know. I'm sorry. That's a very non-Brazilian thing. But yes, I had actually seen that on Instagram. So I was very surprised to hear later that same day that she had been cut. Apparently, Carmouche was surprised as well. Here's what she told MMA junkies Mike Bond, who talked to her there. I'm a little bit pained, Carmouche said. They brought me out here and had me doing a lot of media obligations. I went to Arlington Cemetery and was part of the wreath ceremony. They brought me out as a veteran and as a fighter. Then today, they had me going to the hospital and talking to different people in different wards, only to find out that I had been released earlier. The news just finally trickled down to me. It's a little bit insane that you would, you know, I took time off from work to be here at my own pocket expense. It's just a little bit sad. Then, too, that it would be done that way. I'm here with the UFC and you could have actually spoken to me firsthand. Then here from my management team definitely sucks. Uh, that's the end of her quote. According to the MMA Junkie story, a UFC official said that the matchmakers weren't aware that she was there doing promotion for them. So it seems like there was some type of miscommunication, but man, that's just, I don't even know the proper words. In poor taste, just seems like a bit of an understatement. The good news is that Carmouche herself seems to actually be in good spirits and optimistic about free agency. Junkie later also reported that Bellator is making moves to pick her up. But the thing is that it's not just the circumstances in which she found out about the cut. There are a few other, you could say, trouble, troubling details in the entire situation. One, Liz won four out of her last six UFC bouts. And two, she was literally just coming off a title fight. She lost a decision to Valentina Shevchenko, and yes, entire internet, you don't need to tell me that it was a boring fight as if that makes it okay. I was there in Montevideo for it. I saw it front row with my own two eyes, and yes, in all honesty, it was an extremely boring fight. And yes, the fact that the next headliner I saw live was Jacare versus Blahovic does lead me to think I am the carrier of an ancient Mayan curse, but that is all beside the point. Point is, 
It was also an effort that involved two athletes, each with their own skill sets and strategies and some seriously high stakes. Point is, it was a title fight. Carmouche was, as recently as August, considered a title contender. So what type of message does her release send? That leads me to her interview with Ariel Hawani on Monday. This is what Carmouche said she was given as a reason for her release, as transcribed on an ESPN story by Mark Raimondi. The reason that they gave is that they're really trying to build up the division, and every female that they brought into the 125-pound division, I've been able to beat them. So it's not really giving them the opportunity to build the division the way that they wanted to. So for the best well-being of the division, they had to cut me to give me an opportunity to go elsewhere and get the fight and get the fights I need. So basically, she got the "it's not you, it's me" from the UFC. We've all been there, Liz. I won't go too deep into it for time reasons, but you can see the clip or read the story. Basically, she said she was constantly asking for fights, but she was being told that opponents were turning her down and that she wasn't really able to get as many fights in a year as she wanted. And this is another quote. I mean, it would be worse if they were like, you're just not good enough. We're just going to have to cut you instead of all the females are afraid of me. I'd much rather have it fear for them than it be that I just wasn't skilled enough to, or made a mistake that cost it. Hmm. Okay, well, Carmouche is the protagonist here and that's how she feels, but I'll get to that in just a minute. To answer Luke's question on Twitter to me about how Carmouche's claims stand up, I honestly do not know. I don't know what the conversations actually were, and we know that the UFC matchmakers don't address these things publicly. So the truth is I can't tell you for certain if that really was A, the reason she was given, and B, the real reason. So I'm just going to go with big if true and say that if that really was the case, it does seem like a whole nother layer of unfair expectations placed on fighters. I mean, let's go over all the boxes that they're already expected to check. They have to be exciting and entertaining inside the cage and also marketable outside of it. They have to navigate these weird-ass rankings that most of us are constantly puzzled by, but also accept that these rankings might not mean shit when it comes to getting opportunities. They have to be smart about their careers, but they can't be too choosy about their fights. They have to plan ahead, but also they can't plan too far ahead. Amid all these very shaky and uncertain circumstances, they have this one quantifiable thing that they can do for themselves that no one can dispute, which is to win fights. And then they get told that they might want to ease up on that too. Like Luke mentioned in his question to me, that does seem a lot like the UFC's Demetrius Johnson dilemma. We had this fighter that they did not seem that keen on promoting, and who wasn't going around making it a point to turn himself into this massive brand, but who was extremely dominant for a really long time. Then Johnson finally lost, narrowly, and right after that we saw what happened. There was that historic deal with one championship and Johnson was out. Neither party seemed all that heartbroken about the breakup. Now, I hear the argument that these movements allow divisions to breathe that they create opportunities for other fighters to come up, but I personally see many issues with this message that fighters who aren't as conventionally exciting, whether it's in or outside the cage or even both, are problems to be solved. 
I think there are quite a few fighters in the UFC. And you have the crazy acrobatic Johnny Walker striker types, and you have the stifling Gregor Gillespie wrestler types, and the cerebral Steven Thompson counter striker types, and the subtle working Damian Maya grappler types. And not all of them are meant to sell at venues. And not all of them are meant to be on Jimmy Fallon. And not all of them are, quite quite frankly, meant to be world champions. Call me crazy, but I do think that there is room for everything for all of them. And more to the point here, in such an uncertain business, if you take away the few things that seem even the slightest bit certain, like winning fights, what are you leaving these athletes with? Carmouche said she feels better that it wasn't a mistake on her part that cost her her UFC career, but I do wonder how comforting it must be to fighters to hear this message, that there's even less that they can control than they originally even thought. So, I guess that's my two cents on that. Moving on from that, I'm going to go into my typical, I just have a lot of feelings mode and talk about something that I think might be my least popular opinion and that is bound to get me some fresh haters. But what can I say? I like to live dangerously. Curtis asked, quote, something I've been thinking about for a while. What's the proper etiquette when discussing fighters who miss weight? I don't like bashing people. They obviously don't miss weight on purpose, but they also didn't do what they signed up for. How should we handle these situations? The short answer, Curtis, is I do not know. (laughs) Meaning, I don't know how we should handle them. I can tell you, though, the way I personally go about it these days. And I'm going to use a recent example, which Curtis himself mentioned, and Cynthia Calvillo. Calvillo fought Marina Rodriguez to a majority draw this past weekend in Washington, but not before missing weight for what was supposed to be a strawweight bout. It was a pretty significant miss, four and a half pounds, and also Calvillo's second time missing the mark. Here's what she had to say about it afterward via MMA Junkie. I don't want to make excuses. It's unfortunate that it happened. It was something we were trying to prepare for again. But once again, I had to deal with my body shutting down. I don't want to make any excuses. I just want to go back to the drawing board and we're going to work on that, whether it means me moving up a weight class and that's what I'm going to have to do. And my answer to that is basically, what else can we expect from her here? As I touched on Twitter this week, I just think that I... I wonder about how productive it is to have the social media pile on when a fighter misses weight. Like I said, it's not one of my most popular opinions, and that is saying a lot, considering, well, the rest of my opinions. And I do acknowledge that I have a nearly pathological tendency to spot the gray in what many people see as black and white issues. But Curtis asked, and I'm answering, off the bat, yes, missing weight is unprofessional. Yes, they signed a contract, and they agreed to a stipulation on that contract. And breaching it is disrespectful toward the other person who signed that same contract. There's really no dispute there. Moving past that, though, I just feel like we sometimes collectively talk about this as if cutting weight is this precise science, and as if human bodies were perfect machines that respond the exact same way to the exact same things, and as if high-level athletes in any sport weren't playing a game of inches, and also as if they weren't already getting punishments for missing weight. In Calvillo's case, because it was a pretty big miss, she lost 30% of her purse, which is not a small deal. 
not being eligible for a bonus that for some people can be almost life-changing. I don't know about you, but as a broadcast journalist, I could do a ton of shit with 50 grand. That is also not a small deal. That is not to mention the tons of heat they know that they're going to get from everyone and their mothers, the promotional goodwill that they will inevitably lose, and the fact that this mistake might come back and haunt them when they're vying for any professional opportunities, from pay bumps to title shots. I don't know if people think that fighters who miss weight at one point just sit around and decide to treat themselves to ice cream and laugh at their skinny opponents. But often, what happens is what Calvillo mentioned. Their bodies shut down. Something goes wrong. And I think it's interesting that the same fans who claim to be so worried about fighter health think that they know enough about what went on to determine that the fighter simply gave up or just didn't do enough or that they just aren't dedicated enough. I keep making the argument that fighters are human and not laboratory-built machines. And as obvious as that may seem, I do legit think that people sometimes forget that. Now, of course, there is another side to this. There's the other person, the one who did make weight, and they have every right to be pissed. They made an agreement. They signed a contract. And they lived up to their end of the deal. The cut probably sucked for them too, and weight divisions are there for a reason. So I can absolutely understand a fighter feeling uncomfortable, if not cheated, when the person on the other end of that cage is coming off with a size advantage. And I absolutely understand when a fighter says, especially in light of particularly egregious bad cuts, that they don't want to take a fight. It is a gamble. Uh, Rodriguez took it, but here's how she defined it. We knew there was a huge risk. I was fighting a grappler who was way heavier than me. And if it did come to the ground, we knew there was going to be a problem. And she's right. Especially for straw weights, four and a half pounds is a whole lot. But Rodriguez took the fight anyway, as they usually do. And that is yet another very unfortunate layer of this. That there is so little encouragement for a fighter not to take the fight. I mean... There is not only all this psychological stuff that comes with it, with all the hype and the buildup, but there's the practical reality of it. The time, the effort, and the money that they put into the camps. Not fighting is not really a financially attractive or sometimes even viable option. There's a cultural aspect of it, meaning the expectations around the fighter and the reactions to when they do say no to things. Saying no, by the way, is something that isn't all that encouraged in the fighting world, is it? So it isn't entirely surprising that we don't see more fighters simply refusing to face heavier opponents when it would be entirely understandable if they did. Basically, it sucks all around. I can't even pretend that I have a solution to the weight cutting problem because I don't. But that's why, as imperfect as the system is, I appreciate it when commissions like California's take, take steps to follow these weight cuts in advance. I appreciate the rare occasions when, mid-fight week, two opponents are weighed in and the parties involved decide that they're better off meeting in a catch weight. And I honestly wish this happened a lot more often than it does. And maybe, and this is a crazy thought, there could be better financial alternatives to those who decline fights against heavier opponents. We're quick to shit on fighters for not moving up, for insisting in divisions that they don't belong in, but how many of these people actually quote-unquote belong in the divisions they're fighting in? Like I said, it's a game of inches, or grams, if you will, and they're all trying to play it as best as they possibly can. 
I get that it's the system we have, that it's what these men and women signed up for, but you have to forgive me for not feeling particularly compelled to grab a torch and a pitchfork here. I just don't see how our shit-talking is really going to improve things. I mean, considering the amount of shit-talking out there already, I dare say that if it was effective, it would have worked already. But it hasn't. Public accountability matters, but I do feel it's often, well, at least a little bit misplaced. We're always talking about heavier penalties on fighters, and we're often playing the individual blame and shame game. And I just think that can also mean losing sight of the big picture. And it can keep us from thinking about the real systemic reasons why some of these things just keep on happening. Up next, I have a question from Juice Jackson. Juice, by the way, is the host of Fighting With Myself, a really cool podcast. And he's also a much welcome voice for positivity in the MMA Twitter space. I recommend you give both him and his podcast a follow. But here's what Juice asked me. I'd love to hear you discuss what this fight means for Amanda Nunes. Many people are saying this is a tough matchup for her, but she already beat JDR. And in terms of legacy, it doesn't add much to her illustrious resume. So I think she deserves credit for taking the fight. That's not really a question, though, so I don't really have an answer, but it is an interesting conversation and something that I have, in fact, been thinking about uh, over these past few days. Nunes is, of course, fighting Jermaine the Rondami in the main card of USC 245 this weekend. This is Nunes's fifth bantamweight title defense, and she also holds the women's featherweight title, which she claimed over Chris Cyborg this past December. It is also, as Juice mentioned, her second time fighting the Rondami, the first time they fought at UFC Fight Night 131 in 2013, Nunes won in the first round with elbows. And I will admit, I'm just reading the information here because I have zero recollection of that particular fight. Thinking about this one fight, though, I was brought back to something that Rosna Mayuna said recently about the lead-up to her title defense against Jessica Andrade. Now, Mayuna said that she actually found herself having a tough time getting motivated for that because she'd already sort of conquered her mountain when she beat Yoana Jack twice. I think some people thought that came across as presumptuous or as an excuse considering she did lose to Andrade, but I, I got what she was getting at. And to me, it was another reminder that there's more to the life of a professional fighter than just getting up and mechanically going about their drills and conditioning and sparring sessions, right? In every job, or at least in any fulfilling one, we need motivation. And something that I always find fascinating in a downright weird sport like MMA is where do these men and women get that motivation? What are they not only fighting for, but repeatedly putting their beat-up bodies through all that training for as well? And as easy as it is to point to the obvious and palpable things like money and becoming champion, what I found by asking a lot of them about it over the years is that it is really not that simple. Take Nunes, for example. She already has money. She already has the belt. She actually has two belts. She has a case and a very strong one for greatest female fighter of all time and one of the best of all time across the entire gender spectrum period. And it's not just that. Like, Look at the fights she has had to get here. As far as conquering mountains go, she beat Misha Tate in one of the UFC's biggest events to win the title. Then she defeated Ronda Rousey to defend it. And then last year, Cyborg in Cyborg's division via knockout in the first round. And then just to make sure she had checked all the boxes, 
there went another ex-champion in Holly Holm. I actually got a chance to ask Nunes minutes before I started recording this. What was it that kept her motivated after all of this? Her answer was extremely simple. Waking up and seeing my belt at home every day. And right now, seeing that belt again means beating the Randami, who, like Juice said, is considered a tough matchup and I personally think is a cool fight. JDR is not just an experienced striker, but a very intelligent one. And considering she had time to mature her MMA game since her first encounter, I do think that this is probably the most intriguing matchup in the division for Nunes at the moment. But yes, Nunes already beat her. And although the Randami did hold about herself during that short-lived and frankly weird-as-fuck featherweight title reign, this isn't really a legacy fight. Beating the Randami wouldn't mean settling a score or pulling off the impossible. It would be just further confirmation of Nunes' dominance, another ex-champion on her record, and, I would assume, another healthy paycheck. That's not particularly poetic, but I guess sometimes it has to be enough. Speaking of Nunes and what's next, though, here's another question that I got on Twitter from Stamina MC. You got any sort of in for Kathleen Vieira? She's been gone a bloody long time, and a sense of where her head's currently at could be interesting. So I do not have an in, but she did talk to media this past week here in Rio. I was not able to attend, but my friend and colleague and personal hero from MMA Fighting Guilherme Cruz was there, and he was kind enough to send me the audio. First, uh, just for context, Vieira is fighting also at USC 245. She's set to meet Irene Aldana in the preliminary card. And yes, she has been gone a bloody long time. More specifically, since March 2018, when she took a split decision over Katzingano to add a 10th win to her unbeaten record. Vieta was supposed to fight after that. She was scheduled to meet Tonya Avenger in Sao Paulo the following September. And at the time, Nunes was herself speaking of Vieta as a possible title challenger. But then, just as she got some momentum, Vieta got hurt. She had a knee injury that required surgery, and she had to pull out of the Avenger fight, and all of this time later, here we are. Understandably, it was a tough time for her. I mean, psychologically, it always is, I guess, for any fighter to be sidelined due to injury. But financially, too, Vieta said in that scrum that things got tough. As we know, fighters don't get paid when they don't fight. Uh, Vieta currently lives in Rio, where she trains at Avignon, but it is an expensive city. I would know, because I live here. <laughs> and at one point, she said she did consider returning to her native Manaus and nursing her injury there, because then she could live with her mom and it would be cheaper. Fortunately, though, she was able to get some financial support and stay in Rio. As for where her head is currently at, I can only speak to what I could gather from that scrum, and it would appear it's actually in the right place. Uh, Vieira is religious, so she's constantly bringing up God, and she did say a few times that she had come to terms with her situation and that she accepted that there was a plan behind it all. In terms of just the dynamics of the division, she said she thinks that things actually worked out well for her um, in the long run because she thought the title scenario was a little murky then, and now 
It's clear she sits at number two and she sees herself as the next logical contender if she is, of course, able to get past Aldana. But she was very careful to stress that she was not looking past it, that she took Aldana very seriously. And she said that as far as she was concerned, for the purposes of motivation, Aldana was the one who was holding the belt. Another thing she repeatedly touched on, and that's something her coach Andrea Pedernes had also talked to me about in the past, is that the longer it takes for her to fight for the title, the more prepared she'll be. Vieira is just 28, and she has only been competing professionally in MMA for five years. So it does seem like she is aware of that fact, and I think that's a very important perspective to have. I personally think that her team was very smart in not rushing her back, in letting her really take this time to heal. I admit that at first I lamented the situation because it seemed like Vieta had missed out on this very important window. But now that I think of it, she's young, bantamweight is not super busy, so there's time. And I do agree with her that if she does get past Aldana, if she is the next for a title, she'll probably be right up there. And she's open to fighting for it at either 135 or 145, which increases her chances. Basically, Vieta said she was happy and motivated and grateful to be able to return. Of course, I cannot tell what's in her heart, but she did kind of say all the right things there. And you can read more about Vieta's recovery and her plans if you want at MMA Fighting because Guy wrote a full story on that. But that's what I could gather from that chat and hopefully that's a helpful guide to that particular fight. Next in this one. Yes, I knew. I just knew I would not be able to escape it. MMA writer, as in R. Y-T-E-R, asked for my thoughts on Colby's interview where he basically admitted he's playing a character. Okay, so my short answer is that I don't care if he's only playing a character. This is, however, my podcast and there's no one here to back me up, so I guess I should just go with the long answer. Trust me, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you, but we'll get through it together. So the interview that MMA writer mentioned is a chat that Covington had with conservative commentator Candace Owens in her show, in which he talked about how that fight he had with Damian Maya in Sao Paulo basically saved his UFC career. Actually, it was not the fight that saved his career, he said, but the quote-unquote promo he cut afterward. He told her that at the time, and this is a quote as transcribed by MMA Junkie, they had told my manager, Dan Lambert, that they weren't going to resign me. They didn't like my style. They didn't like that I wasn't entertaining. And this is before I really started to become an entertainer and understand the entertainment aspect of this business. That's a lot of entertainment, Kobe. Uh, going back to the quote, though, it's just a little bit of a side note. So before this fight, they told me no matter what happens, I was ranked number six in the world. We're not re-signing you. We don't like your character. We don't like your fighting style. And I'm getting paid $3,000 to go fight the number two guy in the world. Like after you pay taxes and pay your coaches, you're really going to get like five or $10,000. So I go out there. I beat him up and leave him in a pool of his own blood in Sao Paulo, Brazil, his home city. And I shoot this promo on the Brazilians. And I say, hey, you guys are all a bunch of filthy animals. And Brazil, you're a dump. I can't really verify that information about the UFC, uh, meaning whether those conversations really happened or whether that really was the thing that saved his career there. But basically, that was Covington's self-told origin story. And the rest, like he said, has been history. 
A lot of the debate around said history has since been framed by most of my colleagues in terms of A. Is it effective? As in, is it really translating in terms of bias and numbers? And B. Is it real? As in, is this who Covington is in real life? Or is it just a character that he created? And as MMA writer mentioned, this interview seemed like a convincing answer to the second question. For a lot of people, it was confirmation that this really is just a character. To which I reply, does it really make it any less real, though? I don't doubt that this is a character. In fact, I interviewed Damian Maia a few weeks ago, and he said that before they fought, Covington actually told him something to the effect of, hey man, I'm sorry, you know, I need to promote this or something like that. And I actually met Covington myself that week. I interviewed him, and he was nothing but polite and cordial to me, a Brazilian. Granted, I was working for an American outlet, but I saw the same treatment with other local reporters. But the thing is, I don't care if Covington is actually a nice person, because I don't know Covington the actual person, and I don't cover Covington the actual person. I cover Covington, the UFC fighter. And whether his gimmick is cringe or not, or effective or not, to me, that is irrelevant. To me, the problem is when the gimmick is based on xenophobic sentiment. To me, the problem is when the gimmick involves appearing with female arm candy, as if that is not reinforcing a harmful historic role that we've fulfilled as decoration items. To me, the problem is that the gimmick, fake or not, speaks to a lot of real-life people. Maybe Covington was joking when he called us filthy animals, but there are people in his country who do believe that to be true about immigrants from Brazil and many other places. And there are people who do refer to other countries as dumps. And people who don't believe that these people from these dumps have any place being in their countries. And it is not just the comments about Brazil. We know damn well what that MAGA hat he wears everywhere stands for and who he's wearing them for. I recommend you go back a couple of episodes while you're at it and hear Mexican journalist Rodrigo del Campo talk about how those real-life people acted toward him when he was in the U.S. So yeah, if you ask me, it's not just a cringy gimmick. It's a toxic gimmick. And whatever is in Covington's heart, the fact that he's choosing to play it is still very much on him. Just a couple of notes before I go. I was asked about Jose Aldo's much-talked-about 135-pound move, which is set to happen against Marlon Moraes on Saturday. But you'll be able to find my thoughts on that in two different places. There's a column up at The Athletic in which I started to talk about my multiple journeys with Aldo and his ever-changing career plans. Check that out if you want a little more context behind the move. And also, I talked to Gabriel Gonzalez from MMA Uncaged at length about it. The video is going to come out in the next couple of days. I'll have the link up on Twitter and you'll have access to my whole range of emotions there. I also consider talking about Henan Baron's cut from the UFC, but I don't think that was really a big surprise to anyone. I did have a chat with him before his last fight in Sao Paulo, and I wrote about it with some of his thoughts on the idea of no longer being a UFC fighter. You can also find that up there at The Athletic, as well as a follow-up column by my colleague Josh Grouse. So with that said, that is going to do it for this week's episode. Maybe you liked it. If you did... Maybe consider subscribing, sharing, rating, leaving a review. It's all very much appreciated. I do not have a Patreon, but I do accept peanut butter deliveries to Brazil 
crunchy, of course, I'm not a monster. And if you didn't like it, sorry, but there is nothing I can do about your bad taste. Either way, like it or not, I will be here next week on Wednesdays now with more MMA and other stuff. 